Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Parlor. Today, we will hear an interview with Dr. Rasha Diab, interspersed with clips from our Rhetoric 321 class discussion on her fascinating work in peacemaking rhetoric. Before we get into the article and ask you some questions about its content, we'd like to know a little bit more about you. In your work centering peacemaking rhetoric, which is a very specific kind of rhetoric, why did you focus on peacemaking and why specifically the Arab Islamic tradition? This was an evolving interest. Originally, I was not actually interested in peacemaking rhetoric because I didn't know it existed. I was interested in a closer, well, a similar form of rhetoric, which is crisis rhetoric especially presidential crisis rhetoric. And eventually, as I was reading, when I finished my master's, and I was beginning to look at a different political leader from the leaders I looked at for my master's, I discovered sort of peacemaking. And I realized that there was a huge gap, and there wasn't theoretical models that would help me analyze Sadat's Knesset address. So I began realizing also that there weren't models that would help me talk about what I was seeing in the text. And at one point it dawned on me, I am actually looking at Solh. So who is doing cultural rhetorics? And this led me to cultural rhetorics. The gap in itself, I think, is a worthwhile contribution, especially if this gap is broad and specific. So Arabic rhetoric generally is under the uh, rhetorical radar. And peacemaking rhetoric, particularly, is also under the radar. So if you look, for instance, at scholarship on cultural rhetorics, which have been growing exponentially, let's say, roughly speaking, since the 70s, you find Arabic rhetoric almost missing until the last two decades. And even when it is done, philosophic rhetoric tends to be the focal point. So the contribution of peacemaking rhetoric allows me to go beyond the philosophic tradition and to travel across many domains. Religious rhetoric would be one. The Judeo-Christian rhetoric tends to be the focal point. So it moves beyond that and adds to religious rhetoric. So that's one contribution. Another contribution is that rhetoric operates differently in a society that is relationally oriented as opposed to being differently oriented. There has always been in religious studies this investment in issues of justice. So the rhetoric, as it helps the promotion of justice or questioning injustice, has always been there, but it has never been studied in relation to the Arabic language. When he said, why are you interested in peacemaking? My, um, one of the most crucial reasons that made me come to crisis rhetoric and to peacemaking rhetoric was the question of justice. But when I started doing research, I didn't have the vocabulary of talking about justice and rights. I was trained in critical discourse analysis, which attends to how people manipulate power, how people can disenfranchise others, how people can hide information. And more and more, justice began to be very, very crucial to me. The very early work on my project happened during the Iraq war. That to me was a critical point. And I felt I need to write about peacemaking. It happened also, uh, I should tell you this, that my very original work was a conference presentation. And at that moment when actually war was taking place, that I began realizing my investment is way bigger than a paper. 
So it moved from a conference paper to a dissertation to a first book project that was published in 2016, and now another book project that I'm uh, working on. Right. I remember last semester, you would always talk about how we needed to learn about violence first before we talked about peacemaking, but that it was almost more important. Not more important, but equally as important yes. to talk about peacemaking and learn the strategies yes. so that we can address the violence that we're analyzing. <laughs> I have always found that talking about violence does not engage our imagination for peacemaking. It just maybe alerts us to understand violence better, but does not necessarily give us a vocabulary or does not give us a way to think, feel, and to relate to others in a peaceful way. So to me, these are very different tasks. How do you find that your work is accepted by Western academia? Um, I think slowly. (laughs) So I am benefiting from the work that has been done by lots of other scholars. So uh, if you will recall, a few minutes ago, I mentioned cultural rhetoric. So cultural rhetoric is basically the study of a rhetorical timeline and the rhetorical map, which is different from both, that are shared with us if we study only the Western rhetorical tradition. And this simply means that people go to the Near East to see, for instance, who had been recognized as a rhetor, a powerful rhetor, in Mesopotamia. They would introduce us to a person like in Hedwana, or they would go to how did the prudent speaker was valued in the ancient Egyptian culture. Who wrote about that? Why did it keep popping up in wisdom literature? So people went to the Near East, to the Far East, and went to different nations in Africa to begin studying how rhetoric and the rhetor were perceived in different communities. Good work and not so good work has been taking place in the from the 70s onward. I can be seen as the maybe the second generation who has uh, stirred and saw maybe a broader horizon of possibility because I'm standing on the shoulders of people who have taken risks, who have ventured to study rhetorical traditions in other places and in other timelines before the Greco-Roman tradition as we know it. So despite of the fact that this work has been taking place since the 70s, you can think, for instance, about uh, Robert Oliver's book in the 70s. um, Growingly, people began to realize that Arabic, or at least I, was very aware that Arabic and Arab Islamic and Islamic rhetorics were completely invisible. And when they are visible, they are mostly seen through the philosophic tradition, like the translations of um, Aristotle or commentaries on Aristotle. Uh, scholarship now tells us that this is not just a person who knows both languages facilitating the transmission of information. It's more complex than that. And that the translations and the commentaries are rhetorical works that are responding to local exigencies. So I am certainly benefiting from this momentum. And because of that work and the obvious gap in Arab Islamic and Islamic rhetorics, I think my work was seen as contributing. But as I said, it's a very slow progress. It took me maybe 10 years to write this book. In your award-winning book, Shades of Salh, you began writing about Salh as a form of modern peacemaking rhetoric. In this book, you analyze, for example, Anwar Sadat's use of Sulh in the 1970s. Recently, you've turned to Sulh's long tradition, going back to medieval Cairo and yeah. Al-Qashqandi's encyclopedia. Mm-hmm. Our class had questions about some of the terminology you use, especially this word chancery. 
Can you explain a little bit more about the Chancery? Who were they? What was their job? Why was peacemaking part of their duties? And what would the Chancery be equivalent to in contemporary terms? I so appreciate this question because it's reminding me of details that I'm not currently working with. So thank you. Just to clarify, my first book talks about Sadat, but it's one chapter. My dissertation focused mainly on Sadat, but it wasn't a dissertation about Sadat. And this is why I recreated the project to detangle Solh from Sadat. It's way bigger than Sadat. And my investment was not just in saying that this is a tradition that all of a sudden popped up in the 1970s. My goal actually was to say that it has a, a very long history. So the book is not chronologically ordered. I wasn't trying to say, let me show you the seventh, the eighth, etc. That wasn't the point. But a lot of people are drawn to that chapter. I'm not sure exactly why, but that's okay. Maybe it's the peak or the most striking example at the international level. But there are so many rich examples that are not the international level. So... It seems like I'm going back in time with Kalkashandi. Kalkashandi wrote his book in the very late 14th century and early 15th century. So by studying Al-Kalkashandi, I am going back, but I'm actually not trying to do that. My goal is to zoom in on how Salih comes up in legal and political documents. That's my original goal. This is very helpful because in legal discourse and political discourse, precedent is important. When did we actually have an agreement like this? Did it work or it didn't work, etc.? When you talk to people from varied traditions, rhetorical and cultural traditions, you want to know their way of operating through a concept and what their agreements typically feature. So I wanted to zoom in on one of the dimensions of Solh that I addressed in my first book. I addressed individual or family-related Solh practices. I addressed national or communal Solh practices, and I addressed international Solh practices. Now I want to use on national and international legal political instruments, tools that are used to further Solh. And the book zooms on the 14th or the 15th century book, but actually it will travel both forward and backwards. Now to the question of the chancery. The chancery is the English word that is associated to governmental bureaus, typically central bureaus, where writers for the state would be housed. So writers for the state would have lots and lots of activities from writing a clearer draft of something or to finalizing the draft and preparing it for final signatures. People who were involved in the chancery were actually very well-educated people. You can think about it as secretaries, but secretaries here who are not just prepared to deal with the technical dimension of writing. These were people who knew the etiquettes of communication, the standard of communication, how to edit properly for typical grammatical or idiomatic mistakes, how to know about different formulas for agreements or different formulas and forms of address for political dignitaries. This kind of knowledge is atypical for somebody who has the typical education expected for the Middle Ages. They were people who had typically education in language studies, writing, how to write, how to compose. They would also have an understanding of issues of governance. They would also have a good understanding of issues of law. The person who I 
wrote about Kalkashendi, who happened to produce this 6,500-page encyclopedia, joined the chancery as an entry-level person. So you have a tiered system. At the very bottom is Katib Darj, so the writer of the scroll. This is a person who is given simpler tasks of maybe drafting something. No risky or no information that should be secret, you know, or uh, not to be disclosed with anybody kind of information. But he was very, very well educated. He was prepared to be a judge. And using our own modern standards, a person who is given access to principles of jurisprudence, understanding of law, are expected to be very, very highly functional people. Yet he is hired to be a basically a secretary. So their conception of a secretary and the expectations are not comparable to today's expectations. So chancery is diwan al-insha in Arabic. Diwan is the place of government officials to do some work. In this case, it's the production of letters as well as documents. Thank you so much. Um, this certainly clarifies the concept because I guess a lot of us were not familiar with it because we could not think of who potentially would take on this role because the word secretary did mm-hmm. come up but because we understand secretaries as people who are taking these more administrative jobs as That's you right. described, we could not think of how could they possibly be people we study to learn about rhetoric and peacemaking in medieval um, times. Yes. And similarly, we were also exposed for the first time to the concept of reconciliation as non-punitive. Yeah. And that was a challenge for us because here in the U.S. we're only familiar with punitive justice. And so can you please tell us more about reconciliation as non-punitive, especially the medieval example of a peacemaking ritual you offered, defn, or the symbolic burial of someone's wrongdoing? Is this modality of peacemaking only well-suited to a particular kind of dispute, or is it universally applicable? And if so, would it be fair to victims, as it asks a lot of them, forgiveness and putting yourself in the shoes of those who harmed you? How can the victim just bury it, or does the victim not bury it, because this concept only pertains to a particular kind of conflict? Before we hear from Dr. Diab in response to this question, we'll first hear a short exchange from the classroom discussion. Bring in this non-punitive sense of justice. First, your question was, how does the rest of the class feel about that? It seems strange. And second, does that change the way we think about rhetoric? Burying someone's wrongdoing like that tradition, that feels so difficult to accept for me because what if we're talking about wrongdoing that's really violent or say you either end up with like your rights taken away or something really critical to your well-being is challenged or threatened in some way, how can you just say, we're going to bury this, we're going to move forward? In today's modern world, we are more likely to be introduced to punitive justice models. And as you rightly said, there are different justice models. Reconciliation is typically grouped under restorative justice models. So punitive justice models in the United States is not actually the only justice model used. Many uh, judges use forms or glimpses of restorative justice. A lot of people might not have the vocabulary or might not necessarily see it as that or not recognize it. But the tendency is to use punitive justice. So punitive justice has a reaction or an interaction between typically the state as the representative of the pursuit of justice and the perpetrator or the wrongdoer. And the person who's wronged is not typically involved. Restorative justice models do a lot to include the victim. Because the investment is not just to punish the perpetrator, but to enable the healing of the victim, as well as to sort of give an assurance 
for people who are passerby, who are bystanders, who are seeing the whole process, the assurance that justice will be pursued and your hurt is recognized. And this is why we will do something. So, for instance, think about many court settings where the victims did go through the testifying process, the perpetrator was handled accountable, the judge shared the current possible penalties, but then allowed the victims to share a statement. That is a restorative model, which allows the victim to acknowledge dimensions of the harm in public that are not recognized by law. For instance, we can have the word, this person assaulted me. But the word assault will never uncover to you the real depth and or the real damage. And a person can think, oh, they are given $1 million in reparations. That's plenty. But when you hear the money, the time, the family that was lost or fractured forever that can never be healed, you recognize that actually the $1 million is nothing and will never be enough. So the word definitely can be translated in English as burial. The closest rhetorical equivalent in the U.S. would be a pardon. But pardon is typically just a speech that pardons a former president, for instance. But dafn in Arabic is a ritual and it does not necessarily have a speech given by somebody. That is not the current focus of my work. But what I found was that when Dafn is referred to, it's referred to as possibly used by political elites, like a political representative can use this term. My original assumption that this would be used in communal settings in order to allow people to witness not just the accusation of somebody, but to give them a physical narrative, a ritual whereby the whole community would come together to see a process for all of them to manage their emotions and as if they are burying their anger, their desire for revenge. So it gives them an outlet for emotional management and the remanagement of social relations. Instead of being belligerent relations, they become more realigned as the act of ritual burial takes place. So earlier you talked about how punitive justice may not be enough because, for example, if you were to give someone a million dollars in reparation, it's not enough considering the damage that was done. And that was something we kind of touched upon when you were talking about the concept of salah, especially as it relates to the asymmetry of power. Is it necessary for reconciliatory peacemaking to always privilege the perpetrator, mm-hmm. even in settings where the victim can can speak, even when the victim can talk about the, the harm that was done? Is it always ultimately in the benefit of the perpetrator as opposed to the victim mm-hmm. for sulh to take place? And the specific example we were talking about in class was the ending of apartheid in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Does rhetorical practice of sulh play a role in that kind of situation? And is the end of apartheid an example? We'll now hear another excerpt from the class in which students Dobby and Kaysen share their thoughts on peace and its connections to power. Also, I think to say that something is over, you need that there has to be like power asymmetry because obviously the person who won can say that something is in the past now, but the people who still have to like suffer the consequences. For example, apartheid in South Africa is so much easier for conquerors to say, this is over and now this is all in the past, but then for the people who are actually subjected to it, this lives on with them. It's not over. Peace has not been achieved because there has been no justice. I will say that um, the asymmetry of power, I'm glad you bring that up because that's a like a central theme in foreign policy. And if we think about it, the United States is far more than that. They're at the high end of the scale on the, on the power asymmetry. 
So that might lead to kind of our understanding of how peacemaking works because we're always kind of the big dog. So the first part is reparation can be a gesture for reconciliation. And as I said, it's fraught, right? There are, it might never be enough. It might be recognized as enough. It might add soul to injury, etc. But many communities don't actually use reparation at all. And many communities actually, the closest they get to is not within the restorative model. It's rather within the punitive model when somebody is asked to pay a penalty or a fee to repair damage not to the victim, but to the state. So that doesn't sound or resonate with victims as reparation. The second question about apartheid regimes in any part of the world, and especially South Africa. South Africa actually has an indigenous tradition. So Sulh, I would never import Sulh there because there is no need to. They already have their own local tradition. It is called Ubuntu. It has been researched very well. There is lots and lots of good scholarship on it. Political leaders, religious leaders at the time, including, if I recall correctly, Desmond Tutu, did talk about Ubuntu and the number of people brought Ubuntu up as one of the cultural resources that can help people reckon with the legacies of oppression, harm being done, etc. Thank you so much for this. And now we'll move on to other students' interests. Some of the questions we picked uh, for this interview was raised by uh, one student, John, who was curious about the variety of Arabic words for peace that you mentioned in your article, such as sulh and salam. And his question was, are there any other Arabic words in this category that are significant to you? And are these words interchangeable or do they insinuate very different kinds of peacemaking? The most important word that comes to my mind is the word salam, because salam is the ultimate goal. Sulh is one modality. There are other modalities. Think about arbitration or adjudication, which would have different Arabic words, including the word tahkim. What is interesting about these words is that they allow for different vocabulary that would talk about specific instruments that would be used. So, for instance, when nations are too belligerent and they are so set in their belligerence, sometimes writing of a peace pact, which would be mu'ahadat sulh, is not possible. So instead, people can resort to another peacemaking modality, which would be hudna, which would be in English truce, truce agreements, a form of an agreement, but it is shorter in period and might have some conditions with uh, people uh, recoursing to this in order to rethink their investment in war. That's the real reason. So the only two words that come up to my mind is the word salam as the highest category, as well as sub-modalities, including tahkim, arbitration, adjudication, and sulh. But what was very interesting to me is that I found so many words for forgiveness, Way more than I imagined. And I began taking note for this for future research. Certainly, I can't address this for my second book project, but maybe down the line, I will talk about what does it mean for a language to have more than 15 words related to forgiveness. The reason this is important is because uh, we have a stereotype about the Arab as aggressive and violent. But the language and the rhetoricity of language is actually saying a very different story. This is another reason for my first book project and for my second book project. 
some of the students in our class were also interested in the idea of apologizing through standardized formulae yeah. and the sincerity of this type of apology. So are there rhetorical strategies in the Western tradition that you know of that prepare us to apologize? Is there the use of rhetoric to apologize or reconcile with someone necessarily an act of manipulation? Are we always manipulating mm-hmm. when we think of rhetorical strategies to apologize or to achieve salah? It can be manipulation, basically flattering my conversation partner by giving them what I think they want, which is the simplest formula would be, I'm sorry, or I'm sorry, or I told you I'm sorry. What do you want out of me? Any of these variants would be a form of an angry talking at the person as opposed to talking with them and through the hard moment that we're having. So yes, there are so many resources and some of them don't come in words. For instance, imagine somebody coming and reproachfully telling me, I was hurt when, or I was hurt because, or when you did X, I was hurt. Learning how to listen very carefully is very important. Sometimes when we can't find in ourselves the right words to say, I'm sorry, we can just be silent. We can allow by holding the space for a person to really process their emotions, share with us their hurt, as opposed to us being in denial or defensive or not having the ability to listen to them and to give them the right time to process their emotions. Besides uh, silence and listening carefully, we can also allow our time to work for us. So sometimes premature apologies, especially when it is matched with the formula, would communicate actually in sincerity. But sometimes a person can take a few minutes, come back and say, I hear you. I'm sorry. It will sound better if we acknowledge the harm. The last question related eye for an eye mm-hmm. as a standardized philosophy motivating the American justice system, which as we have discussed, although not entirely punitive in form, does primarily take a punitive So the concept of an eye for an eye, Mm -hmm. which is the opposite of salah, is that a Western tradition or do both concepts exist in medieval Arabic tradition and in Al-Qashqandi's encyclopedia in particular? An eye for an eye, I believe, is part of the Abrahamic tradition. So it has a, a way longer history than the legal punitive systems. But what is interesting to me as people pick up this phrase is that they forget that this was a solution to a big problem. And this is how I can explain it, is that when a person was hurt by somebody, they used excessive force to take revenge. So for instance, the easiest example, somebody steps on somebody's toe and they cut off their feet which would be using excess to incur what in their mind is equitable forms of harm, which wasn't. So an eye for an eye is basically a way to instruct people to be more prudent, more just, more fair. If you need to punish, punish only equitably and with discretion. Now, remember that an eye for an eye will leave everybody sort of disabled. So in Islam, the verses that talk about qasas, qasas is using just measures for accountability. Refer to qasas, you know, holding a person who did something wrong accountable without excess and warning against excess, which was actually a very popular practice, not just in the Arab world, but in every part of the world, to make people seek equity, even in punishment and 
to consider the possibility of forgiveness. Class, when we were discussing your piece on soul, he yeah. became hyper-focused on what the content of peacemaking is. What exactly does peace even mean? So having been in your class on peacemaking rhetoric, I can attest that it's really difficult material to sort through having no prior in-class experience on the tradition. So have you found any difficulty in teaching peacemaking rhetoric to undergrad students? Yes and no. I think like all classes, we begin, hopefully, where we don't reach, you know, we reach a place that is different. I think the first thing that I try to work on is our understanding of violence and peace. We have a reduced understanding of violence as well as a reduced understanding of peace. You're right to say that peace means different things. And we tend to think about peace as the absence of violence. But the more our vocabulary of violence begins to be nuanced, the more we recognize how seriously we need to all invest in peacemaking. Peacemaking can be difficult and can be simple in the sense of, I just mentioned uh, one way to define peace, which is the absence of violence, which is generally referred to as the negative definition of peace. But the peace, we can also define it as the active pursuit of alleviating harm, embracing rights, supporting justice, and supporting the thriving and happiness for as many people as humanly possible. What do you think is easiest to teach? I think once students get the logic of dialogic interaction, they begin cracking a code. As soon as they begin feeling the idea of we can't know peace by just critiquing violence, we need to do a similar complementary critique for peacemaking, they begin to crack another code. Some of the hardest concepts are the concept of suspension of the self. And this is a concept that I can explain as detaching from the self enough so that I can look at the self without anticipating somebody is getting at me or I will be lost if I'm exposed to different ideas, or if somebody says a bad word, I will crumble. So the reason this is difficult is because we never talk about how do we engage with ourselves. We always think about how do we engage with others. So once we talk about this idea, people are fascinated by it. It's one of these concepts that you learn very slowly. Another challenging concept is the concept of forgiveness and the concept of apology, because we have an association with apology as a sign of weakness. And we also have an association with forgiveness as a loss of justice or a concern about the potential loss of justice if we offer forgiveness. How do you think your students adapt to non-Western ideas? Do you ever have students who get frustrated and think that Western ideas of justice are maybe best? Do you see any of that type of pushback in your classes? Well, I allow students to travel through whatever they would like and to explore any concept they like. And I do that to draw on their strength and to draw on their curiosity, but also to minimize this kind of resistance or fighting energy. I don't think it is actually conducive to anything. And I don't see myself as actually convincing any of my students of something. All I hope for is to plant seeds and hope that some of them will germinate. Do you think that you'll start to see the flowering of the seeds you're planting in the next coming decades, possibly even international relations themselves? I hope so. <laughs> well, I try to teach peacemaking once every year, and I have been doing that for some time, maybe six or seven years now. I would love to continue doing that. But peacemaking does part of the puzzle for me, or is one piece of a bigger investment. So, for instance, because I'm interested in epistemic justice, which is the justice, the right to know and to know differently, 
I teach other classes, including, for instance, classes that are rooted or that draw on feminist scholarship. Who is marginalized? Whose knowledge is not recognized? This is why also I travel and introduce cultures and rhetorics of the world. Some are related to peacemaking and some are not related to peacemaking. So I, my, my hope, certainly I do this with a lot of hope, that the interchange of ideas makes all of us grow and open-minded together. So I hope I will see you. Those are all the questions we have for you today. Thank you so much, Dr. Diaz, for coming in and talking to us about your work and your work in peacemaking rhetoric. Thank you for interviewing me. And thanks for all members of the class for sharing their questions and reading the piece. This podcast was put together by Lily Munoz, Dabia Al-Rafai, and Rebecca Atwood. The other voices featured in this podcast are Kaysen Hunwick and Dr. Mark Longacre. We thank the DWRL for making this podcast possible, and the opinions expressed in the podcast belong to the speakers alone and not to the Department of Rhetoric and Writing or the University of Texas at Austin.